Hey listeners, Amy here. This week we're on a bit of a fall break and I'm doing some traveling to Ireland, in fact. So that means we have a rebroadcast this week of an episode we recorded a year ago with Joanne Trotter, a horror reader from Northern Ireland who has a huge following on Instagram. She has a project on her feed to read a horror or true crime book set in every U.S. state. Please enjoy this episode, perfect for your spooky reading season. But we will be back next week with an all-new episode featuring author Lee Mandela, whose novel Summer Suns is part queer Southern Gothic, horror, and dark academia. See you next week. I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two friends chat about books and reading with another book lover. We find book lovers everywhere, and talking about books is one of our favorite things to do besides experience our first truly fall-feeling day yesterday. We're recording this on October 17th, and yesterday was the first day that it felt like fall. It was a little bit brisk, and... It was great. I'm sitting here with my cup of coffee and I'm I'm, in a closet. (laughs) You're going old school. You're back to the closet, recording in the closet, just like they did on an only murders in the building. I thought that was hilarious. And we may be a little biased in thinking that reading people are the coolest people. We are halfway through spooky October and maybe you're looking for a good scary book to read. Our guest today, Joanne Trotter, can give you some tips. Joanne lives in Northern Ireland and works as a scientific researcher, but her hobby gone wild is horror in all its forms. She is a self-professed horror junkie. And she is a bit obsessed with Stephen King, but on her Instagram page at jobis89, you can find a wide variety of non-Stephen King horror book suggestions and reviews to make any spooky reader happy. She's currently doing a two-year project to read a horror book set in each of the 50 U.S. states. So today, we do a deep dive into the horror genre. But first, Carrie, it's early. It's 8 o'clock in the morning while we were recording this, and I'm having my cup of coffee, and admittedly, my brain is still a little bit fuzzy. So, so let me take the wheel here. My news is that this weekend, my family has been doing all things 50th wedding anniversary. Yesterday was my parents' 50th. So we paid somebody to card their yard. Oh, yeah. yeah. So uh, my dad texted us a picture yesterday morning of this big display in their yard. And, and he was like, do you know who could have done this? You know, and we're <laughs> like, well, I think it was vandals, you know, in that area. <laughs> news reports of vandals. So that's all we can say. And then uh, my brother and my sister-in-law and myself and my husband, uh, we took our parents out for a really nice dinner last night. And then today we are all my brother's family, my family, and our parents are going to meet and get professionally made family pictures done. So it's been a, it's been a good weekend. So oh, good. Celebrating the fact that they have stuck together for 50 years, which, you know, I mean, that can be a glorious thing or that could fall under the horror genre. It could. Absolutely. So. <laughs> well, I don't have anything super new to report, but you and I this past week did an, a Halloween activity that's one of several that we're doing during October that has sort of a spooky element. We went to go see uh, a theatrical production of Turn of the Screw based on the novella by Henry James. Uh, is done by Kentucky Shakespeare. And that and was, was really good. good. 
Yeah. Yes, it was very good. So if you're in the Louisville area, I highly recommend you go see it. It was unusual. It was funny when we went to go. If you know that story, it's about a governess and two children. uh, And there's like a housekeeper. And it's a ghost story. And when they gave us the programs, I'm looking at the programs and I see the names of two actors. And I keep trying to turn the page to find the next page to find out, well, who's playing the children? And you had to tell me, no, Amy, there aren't any children. I think that the children are going to be invisible. And I thought, oh, but they did a really good job with that. That sounds a little experimental. Well, and your expectations were. It was just different from my expectations, but it was very good. Yeah, I agree. So we're going to be seeing also The Haunting of Hill House. There's another theater company in town who's doing a production of that. We're seeing that the week of Halloween. So I'm looking forward to that. We're going with some of our book club friends. But I mentioned this a little bit in our interview that we do with Joanne that you'll hear in a minute. But I am reading a book for my YA book club that is called His Hideous Heart. And it's edited by Dahlia Adler. And it is a collection of, of course, 13, you know, unlucky number 13, 13 retellings of Poe tales by YA authors. And so I've been slowly sort of working my way through them. And the book itself includes all the original Poe material that these stories are based on. I felt like I didn't have time to reread all of the Poe work and also read these stories. So I've been listening to some of the uh, original Poe stories. And it's it's amazing what you can find on Spotify. Because I would Google the Telltale Heart. And there's lots of different versions that you can find on short story podcasts and things. But I found this awesome, this amazing version by ghost stories from the London dungeon. And they did an amazing version of the Telltale Heart. That's very cool. You know, I think listening to Poe is kind of interesting because you can certainly dramatize it up. I mean, he sort of wrote that way anyway, but I had also listened to one that was done by Vincent Price. I've listened to one that was done back in like the 40s or 50s when people would sit around their radios to listen to radio shows, you know, and it had all the the chain noises. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was very cool. There's actually even in Baltimore, there's a an organization that's Poe Theater on the Air, and that's all they do is Poe dramatizations. Hmm. That's very cool. Well, I got a taste of uh, a little bit of Poe. My daughter, she's a senior and she has been in high school orchestra all four years. And so we were able to have a a real in-person concert, which was nice because we haven't been able to do that for 18 months. And one of the songs, you know, because this is their fall concert, one of the songs that they performed was new to me, but ties in perfectly with this. It's called The Evil Eye and the Hideous Heart, and it's composed by Alan Lee Silva. Mm-hmm. And it is inspired by uh, Poe's The Telltale Heart. It was super spooky. Uh, I loved it. it was That's very cool. very cool. Yeah. I, I told you about several of the good Poe live audio that I heard on Spotify, mm-hmm. but there was one that cracked me up. And it was supposed to be You know, you've heard of those apps that they tell you a story and it's supposed to help put you to sleep. Right. Well, they had chosen this Poe story. Now, maybe it's not a super scary story. It's one that I've never heard of before. I think it's called The Oval Portrait. I don't know. But 
first of all, that doesn't seem really like a bedtime story that's going to help put you to sleep. And the other thing is the guy who was telling the story, because it's a sleep app, he was trying to make his voice sound all breathy and calm. (laughs) It was kind of cheesy. Funny. (laughs) Yeah. So there's some really good ones and there's some really bad ones, but I thought I would pass that tip along because maybe when you know when you're in your car doing your commute, you want to listen to some creepy Poe. Yeah, I just checked and that Ghost Stories from the London Dungeon is on Apple Podcasts too. I'm sure they're on most of the podcasts. What I do is I just search the name of the story that I want to listen to and see what versions I can find. Speaking of spooky and scary and horror, let's talk to Joanne and see what suggestions she has for us. Let's do it. Joanne Trotter, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I am excited to talk to you. I've been following you for several years on Instagram because you are a Stephen King lover. And I have an affinity for Stephen King. I've talked about it a little bit on the show. I'm not quite as well read in that area as you are. You have read, I believe, all of his books and you are a horror junkie in general. Your Instagram feed is really fun to follow. So it's exciting for me to get to talk to you in person. Although, first of all, I feel like I need to correct that I haven't read them all yet. I still have four left, I think, but I'm kind of saving them because I don't want to be finished. (laughs) Well, he is quite the prolific writer. It would, you know, he comes out with like two books a year, it seems like. So I think we can forgive you that one. But tell us just a little bit about uh, about you and what your reading life was like as a kid. Were you always a big reader? Yes. Yeah, so I was a big reader as a child. You know, I absolutely loved it. And I read all the usual suspects like Roald Dahl, The Babysitter's Club, Goosebumps. You know, those were all my favorites. And then I think it, maybe when I was eight or nine that I discovered The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, which is where my love for reading really, you know, kicked off. I would constantly read those books over and over again. I just wanted to live in Middle Earth, like I think a lot of people do. Um, (laughs) And I was obsessed with the movies as well, and I still am. But yeah, I was definitely encouraged to read from a young age. You know, quite a few members of my family would have been big readers too. So it was only natural that I would fall in love with it as well you were reading fantasy. At what point did the horror interests begin? Although I would argue, I mean, Goosebumps and a lot of Road Doll, I mean, there are some horror elements in there. Yeah. I think it sounded like even from your early on reading habits, that's what you were drawn to. Yeah, I loved Goosebumps, but I never really made the jump to more adult horror for a while. And um, I was actually a major scary cat when I was growing up. (laughs) My two brothers who are older than me, they loved horror movies. And I remember they forced me to watch A Nightmare on Elm Street when I was far too young, which traumatized me for years. (laughs) I had these nightmares and visions of Freddy Krueger under my bed and a fountain of blood hitting the ceiling. But yeah, that actually put me off horror for a long time. It was only in my early 20s, I think, that I decided that I wanted to get into horror. So I actually started off by watching relatively tame horror movies like you know scream and stuff and then I moved on to the more scary stuff and it was that point then that I you know jumped into my first adult horror book which was actually The Exorcist so yeah I'm very much the kind of person who will jump in with two feet by reading one of the scariest books of all time. I was gonna say like that's uh, like not dipping your toe in that's like doing a belly flop right? Yeah I was I was all in at that point. (laughs) 
So I'm really curious about this, especially the fact that you say that you tended to be a scaredy cat because at one point, this has been several years ago, but I have always been a scaredy cat and, you know, pushing 50, still a scaredy cat. (laughs) But somebody that I was speaking with who has a huge interest in scary movies and, and going, you know, especially around this time of year, going to like haunted houses, like they love being scared. And one thing that she talked about was that for her being scared, she is able to keep in mind at all times Mm -hmm. that it's just a movie or it's just a haunted house or it's just a book. Like she can keep that in her head. And so it's almost like she feels like she can control it. Like she gets that fear, you know, she has that feeling, but she keeps in mind that she can control it. Whereas with me, like when I'm in it, and maybe it's my anxiety, you know, that I'm just a naturally anxious person, Mm -hmm. but I cannot remember. It becomes so real for me. Now, I'm much better with reading books Mm -hmm. than I am haunted houses or movies. And maybe that's because the visual element is what sends me completely over the edge. So I'm just wondering if in terms of when you are experiencing horror, whether it's reading or whether it's movies or whatever, do you tend to fall all in and forget that it's just a book or just a movie? Yeah, like I think that's why for years whenever I was younger, I I just couldn't tolerate horror movies. And I think it was, you know, the visual aspect is definitely different to reading it, I think. And it's harder to kind of get out of your head whenever you've seen it visually. You know, it's very easy whenever you're falling asleep at night to just randomly think of this horrible image and then terrify yourself. I think over the years, as I've read more and watched more, I am very good at separating myself from it. But it's weird because I love horror and I love being scared, but it's very much a control thing for me as well Mm. in that I would have bad anxiety myself. But I can't do, you know, events where you go and there's like these planned scares or people jumping out. I I can't do that. It terrifies me. And I think that's because it's out of my control at that point. Mm. And with a movie or a book, I can just, you know, close the book, turn the movie off. But in those kind of staged horror events, I, I can't do them. And my friends are always really surprised by that. But yeah, I think it's a control thing for me. I can't let someone else dictate when I'm scared in a way. As time has gone on, I'm able to just, you know, distance myself more, especially from movies, because I think I've got to a point now where I can watch, you know, pretty much anything. I don't really have limits, which is maybe not a good thing, but <laughs> I've definitely desensitized myself. So when you read that first big horror book, The Exorcist, <laughs> did you have a positive experience with that or or not? Yeah, I absolutely loved it. I kind of just, then I went on like a bit of a binge and I just needed more and more and more. Um, I think the next one I read then was, I think it was Stephen King's son, actually, Joe Hill. Uh, I read him before I read Stephen King. Um, wow, that's know, interesting. It is interesting. I think I only made the connection months later. I was like, oh, my God, that was Stephen King's son. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, then I discovered King, and that was kind of it for me. I was just obsessed at that point, and I just binged a lot of Stephen King books then. Let's start sort of at the basics of horror and what makes a book fall into that category. So for you personally... Is it a feeling that it gives you or is there sort of a set definition that you use? I'm wondering that if a book that just is a little bit creepy would be horror. For instance, I'm thinking, you know, witchy books are very popular right now, but they aren't necessarily scary. So 
in my mind, those wouldn't be horror, even though people think of witches as being like a, a monster per se. So how do you categorize horror? Um, yeah, so honestly, when it comes to horror, I think that it's so subjective that it makes it very difficult to determine what is horror and what isn't. Um, I'm very much of the opinion that if it has relatively dark elements in there, then it could be considered horror. I also find it's generally you know, quite hard to simply define a lot of books as being one genre. They often overlap. So you, know, you can have a dark thriller that definitely has aspects that are very unnerving or make a reader feel uneasy, which would put it under the umbrella of horror, I guess. So I just kind of have the stance that horror can be whatever you want it to be. If you read a book and it scares you or unnerves you in some way, then I think it's fair to categorize it as horror. I think I'd categorize witchy books as horror or at least as dark fiction in some way because witches often have, you know, those dark elements thrown in there. When you were saying that, it made me think of salsa, which I know completely unrelated, but my mom, she can get the the mildest salsa in the world and she's like, oh my God, my mouth, it's burning, you know, we're all like, that's ketchup, mom. And so I think for me, there are things that probably other people, I, there's a book, it's called um, Whisper Man by Alex North. And like that book, I don't know that it would be considered horror necessarily, but it freaked me out. But then again, I am with horror books the way my mom is with salsa. You know, there are some horror classics like Frankenstein, Dracula, the work of Edgar Allan Poe. You read those, Carrie, and don't necessarily have a problem. I think because those have the time element, like because they were written in the 19th century. Well, I guess the thing is, like I could watch a Dracula movie, like the Bela Lugosi Dracula movie, and I wouldn't be scared because that is not, you know, like there's the time element. It it seems removed. I've read Frankenstein enough that I don't think Frankenstein is, is scary. And Edgar Allan Poe, I was actually just reading some Edgar Allan Poe yesterday with my 14-year-old, and I was just like, this is just depressing. <laughs> you know, like I didn't even think of it as horror. And Dracula, I've only read once. But I, I wonder if some of it too is how long ago it was written. And maybe for me, that's part of the distance. Because it was written long ago, I can put distance between myself and it. I don't know. Joanne, have, have you read some of those? Frankenstein, Dracula, I'm trying to think. Um... Yeah, both Frankenstein and Dracula are two of my favorite classics. It still blows my mind that, you know, Frankenstein was written by Mary Shelley when she was only 18. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just so beautifully written and the story itself is so imaginative and it's, you know, considered the very first science fiction book as well, which again, that relays into the fact that books are so often not one genre, you know, a lot of people consider Frankenstein to also be science fiction. So yeah, I also have read Poe. Um, I undertook the task of reading the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe a few years ago. And I have to admit, it was very hit and miss for me. Um, yeah. The classic horror tales are wonderful, but his other works just didn't hit the mark for me. And I think it's because a lot of the non-horror stories are very mystery-based. Mm. And I'm not really a mystery person, I've realized. Yeah, I'm currently reading a book... That is YA retellings of Poe works. And it's pretty interesting. It's making me go back and revisit mm -hmm. a lot of Poe's work. And I agree, some of them are really dark mm -hmm. <laughs> and 
and inventive. And then some of the other ones are just not that good, you know? So it's, it's been an interesting experience. So something that just occurred to me, which relates to horror is maybe important to the conversation. So like when I think about Frankenstein, I think about that the horror is mostly what Dr. Frankenstein does to the monster and what the monster then does, you know? So it's like the horror isn't really the physical of Frankenstein. It's, it's a horrific relationship, right? And so I'm wondering how much of horror is the interaction? Is that part of what makes horror horror is what people do to each other? Yeah, I think that's a very big part of horror. Often the worst horror in books is almost what people do to each other as opposed to what a monster does or some other outside supernatural force and I think those are often the scariest books is whenever it's to do with people as opposed to an outside force because it kind of shows the darkest depths of humanity and that's often very difficult to look at you know and because you like to think that everyone's good but that's not the case so I do definitely agree with that. I'm thinking you said that once you read King, that that was sort of it. And that's the way that I found you on Instagram. And several years ago, in fact, you took a trip to Boston and then up to Maine and you saw Stephen King's house, which you took pictures of. And that inspired me that when I took my Maine trip uh, a few weeks ago, I did the same thing. I went and saw Stephen King's home, which the gate is very spooky on its own with its bats and its its spiders on it. But tell us just a little bit about your particular love for Stephen King. Oh, it's very hard to put into words, <laughs> I find. Um, it's an obsession and sometimes obsessions can't be explained. But yeah, I think the reason why I just have such love for him is that I kind of, I'd fallen out of love with reading whenever I was, you know, in my teenage years, my early 20s. I just didn't really read as much and when I read I wasn't reading anything good it was kind of just you know sloth books that didn't really leave an impact and then I found Stephen King and I just you know fell in love with his characters and his stories and the worlds he creates he's just completely he completely reignited my passion for reading and I just get this warm fuzzy feeling when I read King I just feel like he taps into my feelings and emotions like no one else And I just think he as a person generally just seems really lovely too. And I think that helps. He just does so much for um, different communities and stuff. And I just, I just love him. That's it. (laughs) We have talked to other people on our show who kind of had a similar experience that they were like, "Eh, I'm not interested. But then maybe a teacher, you know, in a high school class said, okay, we're going to read Stephen King. And reading Stephen King sort of propelled them into this interest in writing, interest in reading. And I know my daughter, she's a senior and she's taking AP literature right now and they're getting ready to read Stephen King. And so I bought her a book yesterday. And even though, you know, I haven't read this particular one and I don't think it's, you know, one of the horror books, to me, I think it's really fascinating. I'm wondering if Stephen King will stand the test of time and become a one of, you know, how we consider Charlotte Bronte and Edgar Allan Poe, you know, we consider them classic writers. I wonder if Stephen King will, will become that in the future. Yeah, I definitely think he's nearly, you know, he's almost there in a way because he's so prominent in pop culture and so many things that you don't even think about anymore. You know, you just think of pig's blood and you think of Carrie, there's just so many things. And like, it's even whenever 
you read modern horror books and you read introductions or afterwards and so many of them mention that they're influenced by Stephen King like the vast majority of horror writers today are probably influenced by Stephen King and I just think he will be timeless because think of the number of stories and characters that he's brought into the world it's just staggering I think when we were thinking about horror we discovered, I don't think either one of us knew, that there were all these different subgenres. So there's paranormal, post-apocalyptic, dark fantasy, gothic, Lovecraftian. There's a one called splatterpunk, which I'm not even sure what that is. But do you have a subgenre that is sort of your favorite? Well, yeah, splatterpunk is quite fun because generally it's just anything that's extremely gory, essentially. But um, <laughs> yeah, generally I would read any and all subgenres. Um, the only one I wouldn't really be a massive fan of would be maybe creature features, like books mm. about Bigfoot, etc. I just don't really find them that interesting. I'd maybe rather watch it in a movie format as opposed to read it in a book. But as for my favorite, I love Lovecraftian stories. And these would be stories that emphasize the horror of the unknowable or the incomprehensible. I especially love um, stories like that where they reflect on the risks associated with scientific discovery. I guess as I'm a scientist, that just really taps into my inquisitive side because sometimes being inquisitive is actually a bad thing. (laughs) And like most (laughs) horror fans, I think, yeah, I have a soft spot for the paranormal. You know, I love a good ghost story. They're perfect for this time of year when you're just wrapped up in a blanket with a mug of coffee and it's raining outside. They just have a really great atmosphere that just lends really well to autumn and winter. Yeah. I think I have found that for me, the sweet spot is I love ghost stories and I love haunted house books. Yeah. But you have a really interesting project going on called 50 States, 50 Horror Books. And so we have a bunch of questions about this. Yeah, so I'll just initially explain where my idea came from, actually. There was an article, I think it was in the New York Times a couple of years ago, about the scariest book set in each state. And I thought it was a really fun article and thought maybe it would be kind of cool to work through this list someday. But then when I looked into it, some of the books I had already read, or there were a lot of older ones that were just really hard to find and were out of print and stuff. So I kind of just decided to go rogue and do my own thing. So I thought I would just read 50 books and one set in each of the American states. And then I just invited whoever wanted to take part on Instagram, which has been fun because we've kind of discovered a lot of new books together and you can get ideas of people and stuff. But yeah, it's really just... It's just a way to branch out and maybe read books that you wouldn't have picked up previously just to get that tick on the list. Right. So do the authors have to be from that state or the setting of the book has to be in that state? Or- the setting of the book, basically, yeah. Where it's okay. set, the majority of the book. So how did you select the books that you chose? I mean, like you said that on Instagram, people would make suggestions mm-hmm. and things, or was there a certain criteria that yeah, it had well- to fall into? Yeah, some states are harder than others, obviously. You know, some states have a lot of horror books set in them, like New York or Maine, mostly to Stephen King. (laughs) Um, So I listened to the criteria a little, and I kind of thought that I would let true crime books count, even a dark thriller, basically anything that a reader wanted to categorize as horror. There's also a really great app that helps. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of it, called The Storygraph. Um, it's very similar to Goodreads but better (laughs) and it gives you tons of reading statistics etc and I'm someone who's very much into you know bar charts and graphs so I find it really satisfying 
but it also has a reading challenges section. So this is really handy for my challenge as you can actually click on each state and see what books people have bookmarked for that state or ones they've read. And um, so that's actually where I get my ideas from. It's a lot easier than having to take each state and think, right, Alabama, got to find a harbour set in Alabama, because that isn't as easy as it sounds. So yeah, I kind of just have these suggestions on the story graphs that are compiled by lots of different people. And then I can just opt for the book that sounds most interesting to me, or if I already own it, and it's on my TBR, well, that's even better. <laughs> That was one of the things I'm like, are you Googling like Alabama, Kansas? I mean, I can't. Well, although I guess you could use the Truman Capote. That was in Kansas, right? But some places I can't imagine that there would be a whole lot of. Yeah. I mean, there's just not a whole lot of people in certain of our states. So some are very hard. Yeah. It's kind of just trying to find. That's often why true crime works out because there's a lot of true crime books out there. And you can always kind of find one set somewhere. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So where are you in your challenge? Have you completed it? No, I'm I wanted it to last over two years. I didn't want to feel oh. the pressure to read and potentially buy fifty new books um <laughs> in a year. So I aimed for about two a month. So I think I've read about twenty or twenty one states now. And they've all been new to me actually so far. Like new books. So you're almost halfway through. Yeah. Are there some that have been standouts? There's a couple of books. Cold Moon Over Babylon and The Elementals by Michael McDowell. They were both absolute amazing books that have really stood out this year for me. Just really creepy and atmospheric and they were just brilliant, I thought. But yeah, it's a really good way to discover books that you might not have thought about otherwise. What states were they from? Florida and Alabama. Alabama comes back. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm wondering, since you've read 21 of these books, so are you noticing differences between horror authors depending on where they live? So if they're, you know, American authors versus maybe if you've read Asian horror writers, I mean, or or whatever, do you notice a difference? Yeah, I don't, I don't really think I see much of a difference, you know, maybe just more obvious things like different terminology or slang but I do really find myself veering mostly towards American horror writers as they're the ones you hear the most about and there's obviously so many but I'm really trying to broaden my range as much as I can and just kind of get a sample of you know world horror I guess because there's lots of great talent out there and I that's why I love reading translated horror books as well just so you can find something a bit different but generally, I think, you know, you kind of get a lot of the same themes. They might just differ slightly depending on the country. So obviously, we know Stephen King is, you know, one of your all-time favorites. But are there other horror writers that are favorites of yours? And why those particular ones? Yes. Yeah, so I've already uh, mentioned my love for H.P. Lovecraft's works, as I love Lovecraftian fiction. So he'd definitely um, be in my top five. Also, Clive Barker whose imagination is unlike any I've encountered before. He also manages to write the most visceral horror, but in the most stunning prose. And I also have to mention Anya Alborn, who is actually a friend of mine now, which is a really cool aspect of being on Instagram. You know, you get to be friends with some of your favorite authors. But she writes such brilliant books, you know, books about demonic possession, books about cults and ghosts. And she just demonstrates such a wide range and her books are very um, bingeable as well. Um, And then last but not least, 
is another author I'm friends with, and that's David Sodergren. And he writes the most fun old school horror books. But the difference being that these are actually really well written and they're quite funny as well. And he isn't afraid to land you with a shock ending or twist. His books are definitely those that I just sit and stare at the wall after I've finished. So yeah, those are my top five. But yeah, it's very cool to just be able to chat with authors. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to actually beta read a few books for both Anya and David. And it's just, it's an honor, you know, to think that your opinion counts for something. So yeah, that's really Uh cool. That's really fun. As you were doing your list, there was one woman, which then made me think that it doesn't seem, of course, I'm not as entrenched mm-hmm. in horror writing as you are, but it doesn't seem to be as many women writing horror. Am I accurate with that or no? I think there definitely is a lot of women. It's just, unfortunately, that a lot more men seem to dominate the genre, but there definitely are women writers out there for horror. Um, I'm kind of always trying to highlight them on my Instagram It's hard because I find that I've read quite a lot of great books by women, but whenever I'm compiling a favourites list, it just seems that I've read more from single authors who are male, if that makes sense. I try to balance the two, but it just so happens that I seem to read a lot of Clive Barker books or, you know, H.P. Lovecraft. But there's definitely, you know, great female writers out there. Even just, you know, the old classics like Shirley Jackson is obviously such a great writer and Susan Hill too right the thought i had was women are too busy living horrors Probably, uh, that yeah. we don't they don't have time to write it right now because <laughs> they're too busy dealing with why they can't go walking you know late yeah. at night in their neighborhood without worrying about being attacked by somebody so very true and i think they do bring that kind of unique slant to horror because you know as you say our lives are horror in a way and um, so you kind of get that different perspective which i really enjoy when i read horror books by women But is there a horror writer that you think doesn't get enough credit? Yeah, as I said before, obviously, I love both Anya Alborn and David Sodergren, who are just some examples of what you can find within indie or self-published horror. Another one who falls under that domain and deserves a lot more love is Keelan Patrick Burke. I might be biased because he is also Irish, but he's another... (laughs) fantastic horror writer who isn't afraid to go to you know really dark places I've never been disappointed by any of his books and he writes fantastic short stories and novellas as well so it's really easy to quickly dip in and out of his work I wanted to ask you a little bit about awards. So I think some readers, you know, look for their next read by going to award winners, such as the Pulitzer, the Booker, National Book Award, things like that. But then there's other readers who avoid award winners like the plague. Although we've seen that people don't actually avoid the plague. Okay. They go running towards it. (laughs) Okay. But each genre has their own award. So for horror, probably the most well-known would be the Bram Stoker and the Shirley Jackson Awards. They're probably the most well-known. So what are your thoughts on these awards? Do you find that the books nominated or declared as winners are books that you agree are very, very good? Or are awards criteria different from your criteria? Honestly, I don't think... I'm much of an awards person. I would practically get all of my horror recommendations from the you know community on Instagram. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily use award winners to try and find my next read. Although often I'll be about to start reading a book and then I realize, oh, this one's Bram Stoker. So it's not something I pay a lot of attention to. And there has been a number of situations where I've read a book, thought it wasn't great. And then you see that it won a prestigious award, (laughs) which I think, again, just shows how subjective reading is. You know, no two people read the same book. I think it's just a case of delving into books and seeing if it works for you or not. I'm not really 
an awards person but sometimes mm-hmm. it is just nice to see what is being regarded as you know highly right. thought of in the community I guess so they're handy for that kind of instance so one of the things I wanted to ask Joanne looking through your Instagram you predominantly read horror but you also read widely uh, you know I've seen sci-fi historical fiction and various non-fiction books that you've read in any given month so besides horror are there any genres that you tend you, you had mentioned that you're not really a mysteries person yeah. what besides horror do you tend to like I will honestly read pretty much anything, you know, nonfiction, sci-fi, fantasy, contemporary, classics, all of it. And um, my favorite apart from horror is probably nonfiction, um, which is quite funny because whenever I started my Instagram a few years ago, I didn't read nonfiction unless it was true crime. You know, I went to a bookshop and I would just ignore the nonfiction section. I was like, why would I want to read nonfiction? <laughs> Whereas now I've kind of found like a niche of nonfiction that I really love. I love books that combine science with a really great story as well. Mm. I just finished reading one actually called The Perfect Predator, which was about Mm. a couple who went to Egypt and they're both scientific researchers. And whenever they were there, the husband picked up this deadly superbug and it's resistant to basically every type of antibiotic. And Mm. then the wife ends up doing her own research and reading to find an alternative therapy as his life like hangs on the line. And it was just a really brilliant book, very moving and inspiring. So I love nonfiction books that look at science or maybe more morbid subjects like death and the death industry or kind of weird stuff like that. But as well as that, I think recently I want to read more books about nature and, you know, I'm buying my first home. So I've got an interest now in the garden and animals in the garden. (laughs) So yeah. I'm kind of looking out for, you know, different nonfiction books. But as well as that, I love, I really love Sally Rooney. So my range of genres is really out there, I think. A bit of everything, really. That's so funny because uh, uh, Sally Rooney doesn't fit any of those other criteria of things that you love. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's lots of people who love Sally Rooney and you don't have to be Irish. But do you Mm -hmm. think that because she's from Ireland that... Yeah, I think that does help. It's just, I think she has this ability to kind of tap into, you know, humans and their relationships with each other and just the minutia of everyday life and everyday relationships. And I think it does probably help that, you know, she's describing a culture that I know very well and different towns and landscapes and just how people speak to each other obviously is very relatable in her books. Um, So I guess it does help, but I just think, you know, she's, one of the best writers out there at the minute. And I think, I can't, really can't wait to see what else she manages to, you know, write next. All right. Well, Joanne, it has been super awesome talking to you about horror. It makes me, I've written down a bunch of the names that you've mentioned. So I'll be adding to my TBR list. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Joanne Trotter and with Carrie. Carrie, are you reading something spooky? I have been listening to an audiobook called The Haunting of Alma Fielding, A True Ghost Story by Kate Summerscale. It's not horror. It's nonfiction. But it's been an interesting read. So I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background for it. So first of all... It, the setting of it is 1938, but you have to kind of go back to the 1920s because that was when there was this 
increase in people's interest in spiritualism and seances and unexplained phenomenons. And, and that was because of World War One. So many people had died as a result of World War One that people were wanting to make contact with their lost loved ones. And so then as time went on and the Great Depression happened, and then as society moved towards World War II, people were, again, like anxious and jumpy and just in general kind of spooked. So in 1938, there was this woman, she lived right outside London. Her name was Alma Fielding. And she said that she was being haunted or basically badgered by a poltergeist. So plates or dishes or, you know, random household items would go flying around her house and hit her and hit her husband and hit her son. And so this researcher named Nandor Fodor, he was from the International Institute for Psychical Research. He started studying her. And so, you know, they did seances, they would do experiments trying to explain, like, really weird things would happen. Things would end up in her pocket, like things that looked like they were from archaeological sites. And so they were trying to figure out, is she stealing stuff? You know, is she going to like antique stores and she hides it in her clothes and then she somehow pulls it out during the seance? You know, what's going on? Or they thought, well, maybe she does have these supernatural psychic abilities. You know, they were just trying to figure it out. So then as the, as the story goes on, there's a suggestion that maybe she's, she has experienced trauma. So that, you know, basically what's happened is that she has suppressed or repressed bad experiences or trauma. And then those emotions that she's pushed down are ultimately coming out in other ways and other unusual ways. So I'm, I'm about 50% of the way through. And I, you know, at this point, I don't know, I don't know what Dr. Fodor is going to find out, but you are trying to figure it out as he is trying to figure it out. And so the book, I think, is cool because it makes you think about a lot of interesting things. Like one of the things is, is the supernatural real? Do people have the ability to go behind the veil and move through space and time in a way that most people cannot? Yeah, I think they say that there's like, what, possibly 12 dimensions and we can only experience three of them. I'm not sure about the accuracy of that statement, but is it possible that some people have the ability to kind of move and see into these other dimensions? I sort of like the idea of that, but who knows? Or this book raises a question, is Alma just a bored and powerless housewife? And she sees this as an opportunity for attention that gives her a sense of accomplishment. And, you know, people are very interested in her. And so she's getting way more attention than she normally would or than other housewives would. Or the other question is, is she repressing trauma? And, you know, that the power of trauma can manifest itself through the physical. So I, I think it brings up a lot of interesting things. I don't know yet. I am not Googling Alma Fielding to find out if anything was ultimately determined, but it's interesting, you know, just hearing about what the possibilities are. So that's what I've been listening to. That sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, it is pretty good. Joanne, what have you been reading? Um, yeah, so the book you just spoke about is actually on my TBR. Oh, cool. <laughs> so it sounds really good. I'm really excited to get to that now. But what I'm currently reading is Ghost Story by Peter Straub. I've only really started it. It's quite a 
chunky book, about 500 pages, I think, um, only about 150 into it. But it's considered a horror classic, initially published in 1979. And it's actually very good so far, very much a slow burn where we spend a lot of time with the characters in this small town, a lot of, you know, setting up the situation at the beginning. Um, But it's about a group of men who call themselves the Chowder Society. And they meet up once a month, like a gentleman's club, to talk about different topics and share stories. But then one of them hosts a party and one of the other members dies in a very strange way. And from that point on, they do carry on their monthly meetups, but they begin to share stories that are more paranormal or scary. And as well as this, then they're all starting to have the same creepy dreams. Mm. And there's lots of eerie events just going on within the town. And there's an underlying mystery of this woman who seems to be involved, but we don't yet know how she is involved so yeah it's very much a perfect book um for october and spooky season but yeah i can't wait to see what happens next in it because you know the setup so far is pretty good that does sound good and he is a contemporary of stephen king when stephen king first started because i was a teenager in the late 80s and so when i was a teenager i read the earlier stuff of stephen king and i remember peter straub also being in that mix yeah and then they obviously have the they have two books that they've written together as well. Um, right. But this is my first um, straw book that's, you know, solo piece of work. Well, Amy, what have you, yeah, I'm sure you're reading something spooky. When I got up this morning, I saw a book that I bought at the bookstore just the other day. I decided to read it and I sat down and I read the whole thing. Now, granted, it is a novella, but I read it cover to cover a few hours ago. And that is what I'm going to talk about today. So it's a book called A Spindle Splintered by Alex E. Harrow. And it's fresh off the presses. It hit bookstores this past Tuesday. Carrie, you and I went to her author event at our local indie bookstore this past week. And Alex Harrow has written two other novels. Uh, She has been nominated for the Hugo and the Nebula Award several times. She actually won the Hugo, I think, for a short story that she wrote. And you and I have been fangirls because we interviewed her for the podcast when her first book came out, and that's been almost two years ago. And she's a delight as an interview and as a person, but that's not why I love her books. The way her mind works and how she utilizes fantasy to talk about current issues just really pulls me in every time. And I'm not really a big fantasy reader, but I do like her books. So this new novella is a fairy tale retelling. And that's not really like um, a trope that I'm super drawn to usually. I don't shy away from them, but I'm also not like waiting with bated breath to read them either like some people are. So when I bought this book, I bought it because I buy all of her books because she's an automatic buy for me. But I was prepared that this one maybe wouldn't thrill me as much as her other ones, but I was wrong. So this is a retelling of Sleeping Beauty, a fairy tale, especially in the Disney-fied form, as Harrow writes in her book, is the crappiest of fairy tales. (laughs) Because Sleeping Beauty sleeps through her whole story virtually, having to wait for someone, a man, to rescue her. But it's also the favorite fairy tale of our main character, Zinnia, who is turning 21. She lives in rural Ohio and has a fatal illness where there's no cure. And most people who have it don't live past the age of 21. And Zinnia's whole life has been defined by this illness. Her parents and everyone around her have been trying to cure her, even though that's not really possible with modern 
medicine. And for much of her life, her parents' love has felt like this weight, like she's been put into this padded box so she won't get hurt, but also because she's so she can't really live. So on her 21st birthday, her best friend arranges a sleeping beauty party for Zinnia with a spinning wheel that her friend found at a thrift store. And Zinnia, just like in the fairy tale, pricks her finger on a splinter and wakes up into a medieval fairy tale world to meet Princess Primrose, who is effectively the Sleeping Beauty, or at least the Disney character that we all remember. And Primrose is also turning 21 and has been cursed to prick her finger on a spinning wheel and then sleep for a century, thus not to be able to marry Prince Charming. And her parents also have tried to protect her. Her father has burned all the spinning wheels in the land, and the prince has tried to capture the evil witch who placed the curse. And I am sure that you're starting to see some parallels here. Well, there is, you see, a multiverse. So there's different dimensions, and there are different versions of Sleeping Beauty in each one. And while the specifics of their stories may be different, the essence of their predicament is the same. And I don't want to give too many more details because this is a novella and it's short. It's only 119 pages. What I will say is that it is a decidedly feminist retelling of Sleeping Beauty. It's also a very queer positive version of Sleeping Beauty and that Alex Harrow crams more thought-provoking ideas in this 119 pages of this book in a thoroughly entertaining and delicious fairy tale world than many of the 300 plus books that I have read this past year. She uses portals and port keys in a way that I love. And I didn't even know before I started reading her books how much I loved portals and port keys, but I do. This book also features illustrations throughout, which are originals from Arthur Rackham's version of Sleeping Beauty from the early 20th century. And he was an English book illustrator who was the leading figure of illustration during that time. And his illustrations look more like black woodcut prints, but having them throughout the book adds another layer of fantasy. So when we attended her author event, we learned some things about the book. And I feel like I can give some insight into some of her choices here. So she said she was inspired to write this because she saw the movie Spider-Verse, which I have not seen. And so when she referred to it in her talk, I didn't really understand completely what she was talking about. But apparently she adored this movie and it made quite an impression on her and made her want to write something similar. She also wrote this during COVID and she said COVID broke her brain and she started reading romances, primarily queer Regency romances recommended by a friend, even though she had never read a romance and she thought she would never be a romance reader. And those definitely inspired some things in the story as well. And lastly, she said that COVID and the isolation that came with that made her appreciate in a way that she hadn't fully before how much she needed and loved her best friends. And I think COVID for many of us, has raised this question, like who in our lives are COVID worthy? Meaning like, who are we willing to keep in our tribe? And I think for many of us, me included, my tribe has shrunk and the people who have stayed in that tribe are real keepers, are gems. And she said that this book, which has a very strong friendship theme in it, was a nod to that. She said that there's a sequel to this, another fairy tale retelling novella is on its way. And so she may have persuaded me to appreciate a fairy tale retelling a little bit more. So I am so mad at you for reading this before me. This is how you're getting back at me for reading the book of eels. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's okay. Oh, it, you could read it this afternoon if you wanted it. It doesn't take that long. 
Well, maybe. <laughs> I'm frustrated. Okay, but I'm excited that you read it, but I'm frustrated too. All right, I'll get over it. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, Joanne's going to answer her three about me. We are back with Joanne. Are you ready for your three about me? Yes, I am. So number one, you have a PhD in materials science. So what does that mean exactly? It sounds very complicated. Yeah, so my background is actually that I'm a pharmacist. But even when I was studying pharmacy, I kind of knew I wouldn't be a pharmacist. I always wanted to go back and do scientific research. I'd always thought I would do research in something like multiple sclerosis, which is a progressive disease that my dad had. But as fate would have it, I ended up working in the area of infection control. And that's because in the final year of the pharmacy degree, we have to complete a four week project in the lab and I was assigned to this professor who I just loved from the get-go and I found that I loved looking at ways to prevent infection of medical devices and so I went on to complete my PhD with him. So my PhD was actually focused on developing different materials and coatings that could be used um, with the urinary catheters as a way to prevent infection because that's a really major issue in healthcare. It was really interesting and I have to say that although it was obviously quite stressful and hard work, it was probably the best three years of my life and it's still my finest achievement. That's amazing. I love that. I love it too. Carrie and I are both, we both studied English. We're both English majors and Mm -hmm. a lot of the people that we talk to are also more humanities based. I love talking to an avid reader who is a science person. Yeah, I even find that 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 was actually why I loved whenever I discovered Stephen King. It was because I was in the lab all day, every day. I was really stressed. And, you know, that was the best way to unwind in the evenings was just to pick up a book, zone out a bit. So, yeah, it kind of helped me get through my PhD in many ways. So you're a pharmacist now, though? Um, No, I... Uh, technically I'm qualified to be one but I just never wanted to be a pharmacist so I actually work now more in regulatory affairs that comes to different like food standards and stuff so it's kind of using my research skills in a different way that's so cool yeah I love talking to sciencey ladies (laughs) me too (laughs) and you can do so much with science you know it's not just going to be lab work there's so many things you can do you know it's, it's it's great I love it as a career path so for question number two, obviously you're a horror junkie for books, but it also sounds like you enjoy horror movies as well. So I'm wondering, is Halloween as big a thing in Northern Ireland as it is in the States? And are there some favorite horror movies that you would recommend for this Halloween season? Yeah, I'm definitely a huge horror fan on all levels, whether it's books or movies. My partner, Matthew, actually complains that we only ever watch horror movies. <laughs> He's like, can we not watch something else this weekend? And I'm like, no, that's it. <laughs> yeah, because I think it's even worse this month because it's October and I want to watch 31 horror movies throughout the month. Oh, um, wow. Because I did that last year and I, I just loved it. So I try to watch some favorites and then add in new movies as well. 
But as for favourites for the Halloween season, I think the movie Trick or Treat is a lot of fun. It's an anthology movie made up of a number of different stories that then begin to interlink and come together. But it's a lot of fun. And obviously you can't go wrong with the original Halloween either. But as I always say, there's horror for everybody out there. So if you want something more tame, you could always watch Sleepy Hollow or Hocus Pocus. Because obviously (laughs) that movie is amazing. Um, (laughs) But yeah, unfortunately, Halloween is not as big a thing here as it is in the States, um, which makes me sad on a daily basis. (laughs) We we have like trick or treat. Um, Some people might decorate their houses if they have kids. But it's nothing, you know, like on the scale of America. Whenever we we did that road trip around England a few years ago, uh, my favourite thing to do was actually just drive around and look at everyone's Halloween decorations outside. (laughs) Like it was incredible, especially whenever you were in Salem. You know, the houses were just on another level. So that's one of the reasons why maybe I'd love to move to America someday just to... (laughs) Just to celebrate Halloween on the scale it deserves. Or maybe just for October. Yeah, just for one month and then move back again. It really is crazy because it's like, or September 30th, everything is, you know, kind of normal. And then as soon as it is October 1st, suddenly it's what we just said, spooky season. Yep. Everything is different. Is pumpkin a big thing there? Do you all have a lot of pumpkin? Well, we can get pumpkins, but I'm really sad because I love baking as well, but I really wanted to make something with, you know, like a pumpkin based thing. And there's like no pumpkin puree over here, which is just a a disaster. So everyone's (laughs) like, just make your own pumpkin puree. And I'm like, that's too much effort. I want to buy it in a can. So next time you come to the United States, you need to just like buy a bunch of cans and take it back with you. It's an extra suitcase of pumpkin puree. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) All right. Question number three. You describe yourself as a carb queen so what carb is your biggest weakness um I just love that that's my title (laughs) um but yeah it's hard to pick just one to be honest but I think bread in all its different forms (laughs) I love cookies and I love pancakes waffles just all of it every type of bread you can get I will devour I just love carbs (laughs) do you have a best carb experience and um, there's probably too many to describe, but <laughs> I can think of a few whenever we were once again in New England, best holiday ever. Uh, we had these amazing waffles and pancakes in this place in Vermont, and they had the most incredible maple syrup as well. Oh, and then yeah. there was also loaded scones that I had in Portland, which were unbelievable too. <laughs> but yeah, there was just so many things in New England that, you know, me and my partner will look back and just look at photos of the food. <laughs> we'll be like, oh, I remember that night we had dinner there and we ate and reminisced about all the great food we ate. <laughs> there was some really good food in Portland and in Maine in general. Yeah, definitely. My, Even just my first experience with lobster was in um, mm, Maine as well. Yeah. It was great. All right. Well, Joanne, it has been so fun. Thank you for taking time out of your weekend to speak with us. Happy Halloween. And we will continue watching and and seeing what horror books you're reading on Instagram. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. You can find Joanne Trotter on Instagram at J-O-B is 89. 
Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at the Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. The show notes are also included on the description of the episode on your podcast player. We have new updated website and have some great new features, including listener book recommendations and pictures of our guest pets. So come by and take a look. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives at forwardradio.org.